The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box, your headlines this hour. U.S. retail sales climb, jobless claims fall ahead of next week's Federal Reserve meeting, while the CEO of FedEx is warning of a global recession. Uh, of course, I'm very disappointed in, in the results that we just announced here. And, you know, the headline really is the macro situation that we're facing. Well, as a result, the market rally falters with major U.S. indices on track for their fourth negative week in five. The Man Group CEO, Luke Ellis, is warning of further pain to come as the Fed tightens its policy. They've got to make financial conditions worse, and so it's pretty sensible to be sure bonds and long the dollar and... Yeah, well, there's some trading opportunity in equities that they're not going to go up until the Fed takes their foot off the neck, which may be some time. Well, elsewhere, Chinese consumer confidence shows signs of resilience with retail sales rising at their fastest pace in six months, whilst factory output and investment data also top expectations. And Russia acknowledges Chinese questions and concerns over the Ukraine war and Presidents Putin and Xi hold their first talks uh, in person since the invasion. Meanwhile, Adobe shares sink after the software company announces a $20 billion deal to buy Figma. Adobe CEO tells CNBC he expects to see a boost in the near term. We will offset, uh, you know, dilution. Uh, while the transactions underway, but we believe that it rapidly uh, actually enables us uh, to accelerate our bottom line EPS as well. So a very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box and very interesting to hear what Luke Ellis had to say. I had a conversation with him back in February here in London and he was very clear that he thought that the good days were over for bull markets and effectively his words to me at the time were the Fed is going to carry on until they break something and ultimately what they break is the back of consumer demand in the opinion of him and other market participants that are so minded. Well, we had a slew of economic data that has painted a rather mixed picture on the US economy in the run-up to next week's Fed meeting. Retail sales uh, rising 0.3%, which was a decent number. Um, It would have been a negative if a 3% rise in auto sales was excluded, however. Uh, Jobless claims fell for the fifth straight week, coming in at 213,000, which was lower than forecast. But industrial production fell 0.2% on the month against expectations for a flat print. So a trifecta of really interesting numbers for the markets to have to work with. But if you want to know where the pain is expressing itself, it is, of course, in the repricing of the money that you need to borrow to get on with your life, whether that is to go out and buy a car, whether that is just day-to-day living expenses, 
or indeed whether that is to go out and buy shelter, as the Americans call it. Meanwhile, uh, as we say, the average rate on the 30-year mortgage then, and you can follow the chart here, topping 6% this week, according to Freddie Mac, the housing agency. It's the first time since 2008 and comes amid the Fed's attempt to clamp down on spiking inflation. And it's not just out at the 30-year that we are starting to take out big numbers. Big move down at the two-year as well that took us through 3.48%. Another reason why conditions are tightening in the United States. And Karen, I guess another reason why a lot of CEOs are getting nervous. Big implications for the amount of interest you have to pay. And obviously that impacts the consumer at some point. Now FedEx shares plunged and extended trade as the courier firm withdrew its four-year guidance and said it will implement cost-cutting initiatives to contend with soft global shipment volumes. Now the company will close 90 offices, five corporate locations and pause hiring. The announcement comes alongside first quarter revenue and earnings that missed Wall Street expectations. Speaking to CNBC, the CEO Raj Subramaniam said he expects the world to enter a global recession. Uh, of course, I'm very disappointed in, in the results that we just announced here. And, you know, the headline really is the macro situation that we're facing. The U.S. Uh, consumer uh, has, you know, definitely spending less. But, you know, the U.S. has been somewhat insulated because the U.S. dollar is, uh, you know, is, a, is, is the currency of choice for the world. And there's some insulation there. But, you know, I do see the U.S. is slowing down, too. Right, um, I, I, we've been pontificating the three of us, uh, as ever. Uh, if a trifecta is three, what's two? Well, we've gone for duopoly in the end, I think. Because and the, it's very interesting, because I think it was the, the duo, duopoly, um, double bit of data from the initial claims and the retail sales that really sent these markets uh, into the maelstrom. Because, look, let us be very, very clear about this at the moment as well. What the markets are looking for is bad data at the moment. There are times when you have a great piece of data and the market gets very excited because the economy is doing better than many people feared. But at the moment, all you want to see in market land out there is very, very, very binary, is bad data because you think it will steady the hand of the Fed and actually create an earlier pivot, which I'm afraid you're looking on the horizon at the moment and you can't see that pivot, certainly next year at the moment, despite the fact that you all thought it was going to be there at one stage, didn't you, uh, in February of next year as well. So the duopoly of data uh, in terms of the retail sales being way better than expected, which is a good news story, by the way, and the which has um, two-thirds of its economy at least uh, looking at the service sector as well. But unfortunately, what is going on in Main Street doesn't necessarily transpire to what's going on in Wall Street. You all know this sketch by now. And actually, what Wall Street is beginning to worry about uh, is the growth numbers, the earnings numbers, and refinancing numbers of a lot of companies. Very interesting stories going around about some of the bond issuance at the moment for some of the buyouts there uh, and whether that is a line in the sand in terms of the amount of money that has to be paid or it's going to get worse, some of those terms of financing. There are many of us out there who look at the history of the cycle who think actually uh, we're not even there yet. 
certainly on high yield and junk, uh, dare I say, it, all along the, with the investment curve in terms of the price of the yield that you're going to have to pay. So the markets fell aggressively. Nasdaq composite was the biggest decliner, 1.4%. It was into the close a little bit more. We saw energy falling quite aggressively as well, down 2.5%. A really great battle going on if you're interested in these things between 87 and 95 bucks at the moment on the price of Brent as well. Very interesting uh, as we try and find a level there. Let's have a look at treasuries. Jeff's already mentioned the two to 30 year as well. Um, the two years fascinating for the market. The 30 year is fascinating for real people out there as Jeff was just showing as well, because that is your benchmark for your mortgage rate as well uh, and uh, the multiple year highs as well that is very painful for american families that are having to take on higher food costs higher rental costs as jeff mentioned uh, and of course higher energy costs but you can strip all that out because it's not core isn't it apparently dollar crosses okay i, I so that's interesting actually we are seeing a, a, a resurgence of the dollar but not past the recent highs so the recent lows for sterling circa 114 the recent low for the euro around about 0.99 the recent low for the yen uh, certainly higher than we have higher now 144 plus as well dollar yuan is stately in its progress but it's got a seven handle at the moment it's interesting that that one's beginning to uh, to move around just a little let's have a look at the asian indices are they following the wall street low yes they are Yes, I think across the board, we can say that unequivocally, can't we? Uh, Shanghai Composite down 1%, as indeed is the Nikkei 225. Um, do you want to look at US futures? Bit early, isn't it? But let's do it anyway, shall we? Should we have a look at them? There we go. US futures currently trading lower once again. So it is really testing the nerve of the market participants at the moment. But uh, is there any good news out there from the World Bank, Jeff? Uh, well, let's get into the read. The World Bank is urging central banks to take a coordinated approach to lifting interest rates, warning that if they don't, the world could experience a, quote, devastating recession next year. President uh, David Malpass called for more action to ease prices, saying global momentum is weakening and emerging markets and developing economies could be hit hard. What does that mean? <clears throat> so, sorry, I, I, I know that we've... Have we got a guess? No, we haven't got a guess. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Oof, I'm, not, I'm not in too much trouble. What does that mean? Hmm. And I'll just go through it again. David Malpass says more coordination to ease prices. Hmm. I, I, Mr Malpass will know more about economics than I will ever know, hmm. full stop. But what yeah. does that actually mean in real terms? What, stop a war or something? Or get more trade going transatlantic? Well, what does it mean? Uh, yes. I think is the answer, isn't it? Because, look, on the one hand, I mean... It's as, platitudes, isn't well, it? As, as you read that story, it looks like it's in conflict with itself, doesn't it? Because it starts really? off by really? saying, uh, David Malpass and the World Bank think that it's a good idea that central banks coordinate interest rate rises. Yesterday we had uh, Gorgieva at the IMF saying, you need to go hard, you need to remain stubborn, Didn't get on with... did she also say us uh, economists kind of got it wrong? Well, she did acknowledge that. Yeah. But, but the idea is that from both of these organisations that we need to fight the demon of inflation and it must be slain. But at the same time, he's also saying, we've got to ease prices here. Our global momentum is weakening. We've got to make sure that we don't have a terrible recession. And on face value, that does appear to be in conflict. But I think just picking through the bones here, what David Malpass and others are saying is, yeah, it would be really good if we could actually keep prices down of things that people consume. 
because otherwise it's going to life is going to be incredibly difficult Looking for people to that apple in emerging markets and elsewhere. It's also reading that if uh, central banks don't follow the Fed, then you get this extraordinary differential between the US dollar and other currencies, therefore also causing more inflation problems with depreciation of local currencies. Is, is that what we're talking about? Exacerbates the pricing pressures <laughs> on economies. So we're saying, you know, get on the same page, move aggressively as you have been with the Fed. Don't allow the US dollar to get too out of control at this point because there will be another backlash, which means that a lot of these poor economies in particular, and as we talk about the World Bank, they're talking about economies that stretch well beyond just the United States, that you're going to have problems in some of these developing and emerging worlds uh, as well because of the uh, pressure around depreciation of currencies. But, 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 yeah, OK. So well, it, in the bad old days, of course, the, the, these imbalances would <clears throat> ultimately be uh, reduced by free markets. I mean, that, that's the theory, right? Mm. That, that um, currencies um, shift in value against each other as a reflection of the behaviour of those countries and the deficits and debts that they run up. So you would expect that a country that is seen as less creditworthy and with large deficits and large debts would see its currency decline against other stronger currencies and that ultimately that would disincentivize people to continue to buy the products from those other countries and there would be a, an adjustment that would naturally take place. Unfortunately, two things uh, are really the case here. One is that because we've had so much intervention in markets and so many peculiar episodes over the last few years that have persuaded authorities to intervene monetarily and fiscally, we haven't had the chance for that kind of notional rebalancing to take place. And the other problem is that we're basically talking about a country that itself is running large deficits and debts and trade imbalances against China, and yet its currency is still strengthening because it has the benefit of being the world's global reserve currency and is perceived as maybe one of the strongest economies in the world. So in that sense, the theory isn't working out either, which means that the imbalances are going to continue, which means that the pain in emerging markets and a lot of poor people and in developed economies are just going to get poorer for well, the time the being. the switch to compensate to uh, the fallen currencies where you go and buy more product from a nation, and Japan's been a great example, that volume equation doesn't come through instantly. It takes a number of months for you to see the, the rise in volumes uh, to compensate for the fall in value. But if you think about what we're coming up against, again, another downturn. We are seeing warnings from every corner of the world that there's going to be some sort of pain down the tracks. So doesn't that depress the amount of demand anyway? So, so the volume the story is not necessarily down the line yeah. on the horizon as well. So, right, so we've said that the economics is confusing. And one of your favourite phrases, I think, is walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm. I avert a recession, but also avert inflation. Well, guess yeah. what, central banks? You help cause this problem by, one, uh, buying vast amounts of product and, 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 and shoring up the system mm. uh, when perhaps that wasn't the wisest thing to do. So a lot of these problems now, are, and of course you ignored the, the fact that this is real inflation rather than transitory. But I mean, what is interesting is we talk about all these world countries and the emerging nations and the ones that need vast imports of energy and food and that as well. Isn't it interesting that the West is at the moment not winning, I'm not saying losing the battle, but not winning the battle for the hearts and minds of the South, uh, of the East as well, over what is going on in Ukraine. Because if you want to find a quick fix for a lot of the problems in the world, it will be if the war ended tomorrow because then the grain shipments would be free and plentiful as well. Oil prices undoubtedly would abate 
certainly because the Russian oil could potentially find a route back to market globally as well. So hence you would have a lot more energy product coming onto the market, you would have a lot more grain and food coming onto the market, so you would not solve, but you would go a long way to solving two of the greatest problems in the world at the moment. But isn't it interesting that the West, and and again I say this because I've looked at this for a long time and I've spoken to people um, from Burrells and others as well, the Mm. West isn't winning the battle for the hearts and minds of the rest of the world. Let's be brutally honest about it, the West has done a very good job of tying up and unifying NATO, the EU and the United States and backing Ukraine, but it's failing ignominiously at the moment to win that international battle with the South. I don't know if we're completely right thinking that it's almost going to be utopia if there is a resolution. I didn't with say it's war. utopia. I said we'd right. go some way down the line some to way. creating less but of a problem. I did, speak, I did spend some time thinking about this the other day. What would happen? Would it be an instant change on markets? But we've still got this runaway demand story that central banks are concerned about. So even if we fix some of the supply chain issues on energy and food, will we still have an underlying demand problem? And would it also take away some of the fears that people have about the world economy so they go out and spend again? Would it be a trigger for even higher? higher rates potentially, which would be an interesting market reaction. But just one of the other points here as we talk about the long term and the ramifications what we're seeing right now, we've come out of a world where we're seeing uh, some of the disparity starting to minimise, at least in the last few years, because of cheap credit. Now we're going back to problems between countries, inside countries. And if you look at the, the numbers from the states on mortgage rates, which has very much an implication for disparity. I mean, we're talking about loans on average. So if you had a $500,000 loan in the states and you were paying the interest rate about a year ago, 2.86%, your interest rate over the 30 years would be about 200000 That would be your contribution that you would pay back to the bank. Now, today's rate, that more than doubles to $465,000. You think about the average person, how do they come up with that extra money over the course of 30 years? There's no money tree to tap. It means it comes out of long-term savings. It means there's no money for some of those discretionary elements they would have spent money on. That's a huge hit for the average person. There is a a problem, though, with the maths. Uh, And and everything you said, I think, is on the money. Um, the demand issue is being dealt with by rising rates because we've only got to look at the more recent GDP prints to see that finally there is some slowdown that is really starting to embed. And remember, all the GDP stuff that we're looking at is rearview mirror. So we're not even seeing current GDP, if you, if you know what I mean. But, the, but it seems to me the <clears throat> that there's a problem here with the way that we're looking at inflation because if inflation was um, a problem for everybody, you would see higher numbers in countries like Japan. And Japan is, you know, Japan had a knockout inflation number because I think it went up from 2.2 to 2.4 or something like that Mm. from July to August. Why isn't that number higher? If inflation is a global problem in food and other products and companies are enforcing input price discipline through to the consumer, why isn't it higher in Japan? Why isn't it the same level that it is in Europe or in the United States? And to me that says that the arguments that the central banks made back in the day about this is transitory, that may not be wrong in the sense of the causes of the inflation impulse they just misunderstood the timing and how long it was going to wash out. I think the problem that they are identifying now and we all need to be very wary about is just how sticky this becomes because the minute it translates from the cost of food and commodities and housing into 
embedded expectations about annual 10% salary rises, then you've got a serious problem, mm. it seems to me. And I'm not sure that we ha we're convincingly have that problem yet, but as long as these prices remain high, workers will be more convinced that they need to go back to their bosses and demand higher compensation. So that, that's, the, that's the kind of difficult bit over this phase, it seems to me, and why the market is increasingly edgy Fact. about the central bank responses. Fact, the cat is out of the bag. When, when it's just food and energy, the central bankers think they can contain it. When it's moving into every part of society, mm. Uh, and, and the cost of living crisis is getting worse because the pay rises that American workers and British workers and European workers are getting is substantially lower than the increase in their cost of living. That phenomenon that you both mentioned actually, whether it's your mortgage costs over there or whether it's the pay round over here as well, that is only going to get worse and how the central banks deal with it, it is going to be torturous and they will not be able to walk and chew gum, they will not be able to avoid a recession and get inflation down as well. The so-called Goldilocks and I think that's what's sending these, going back to our, our, our bread and butter, the, the markets are terrified that the central banks can't do this. Finally, realizing that there isn't actually omnipotence from our, our masters and our in the monetary and fiscal world as well and what's the politicians answer they're going to chuck more debt at this yeah, as well and then it's going to create a greater cycle of problems but, but I mean we love using the body analogy here you you do not cure someone's COVID by killing the patient I mean uh, you know and that's what what is ultimately being done here by the central banks we're gonna have a recession if you want to stop people demanding higher salaries lay some people off, show them some fear. That, that's ultimately what we're being told here. It's not, okay, we need to speed up the process of shortening supply chains to make them more efficient, to reduce the higher costs that are being borne from higher freight rates, from COVID lockdowns in China, from higher input costs from energy. We're not dealing with that aspect of it quickly enough, which is the double-headed well, aspect of what David Malpass Drag was saying. And this is what Draghi always tried to say. And I think, actually, the message didn't get through. When he was a central bank governor of the European Central Bank, he always said, we will buy you cover, we will buy your bonds, we will buy your uh, investment-grade corporate bonds, we'll buy your sovereign bonds. But you have to structurally change. You have to become higher productivity, mm. better structurally. And guess what? That fell on deaf ears of politicians who just want to go get elected. I do think we are getting some of those job reductions. I mean, the FedEx story was huge. So if you spook the life out of some of the corporates and they start to reduce workforce, then it I just tackles know, the participation rate I, to an extent. I don't know. We've got 3.6% um, unemployment rate in the UK, which is the lowest for a very long time. We've got weekly jobless claims that have come in at 213,000. You may be correct. I'm not seeing that across yeah, the board. It, I, I totally agree. It's not across the board. And this ties to our next story because you wouldn't be doing a massive deal at this point, would you, if you were not feeling It is our next story now because we've actually killed about four stories <laughs> by our right. chat. <laughs> what rundown? What Friday rundown? Shh, tell the now, audience. Adobe says it will acquire collaborative design software company Figma for just a small fee, $20 billion in cash and stock. Now, Figma, which was founded in 2012, competes directly with Adobe's XD program. The announcement comes amid an intense tech sell-off this week and a rough year for the tech sector. Adobe shares tumbled on the news. Again, right point in the cycle or completely incorrect timing? What does Jim think, Bye. Well, CNBC is mad money. Uh, Jim Cramer spoke with the Adobe CEO Shantanu Narayan and defended the value, or he defended the value of the deal.
when you think about the entire world of anybody who's trying to create a mobile app, trying to create an interactive web experience, uh, trying to do things uh, that are exciting in terms of how they collaborate and ideate, uh, we believe that the combination of Adobe and Figma is going to be one of these unique combinations uh, that completely ushers in a new era of collaborative creativity. I think if you look at all of tech, certainly all of tech has perhaps, uh, you know, been impacted a little bit by the macroeconomic environment. But, you know, we're focused on the next few decades and we continue to believe that Adobe is great value. Our best days are ahead of us. Uh, very upbeat comments there. And an intense sell-off in the tech sector has dragged the iShares expanded tech software ETF more than 6% lower this week. And we actually saw it during the height of that selling earlier in the week. It was this sector that was hard hit. Do you think we could get more zeros <laughs> into I that I think board? we need the producers to find more zeros. I yeah. think maybe we need an algorithm. It's the level of detail that CNBC <laughs> excels over yeah. others. How many decimal points have we got there? Two, six decimal points on that. There you go. You don't get that on other business channels. It's a very yeah. accurate picture, particularly if you're looking at the intraday <laughs> movements. Now, on pace for its fourth negative week, and it is also the worst trading week since January. Year-to-date, it is down almost 30%. Still to come on the programme this morning, there are other things going on apart from the business day. The uh, second full day of the Queen's lying in state with waiting times around 10 hours now for the queues of people that are hoping to go and pay their respects. Tanya is standing by with the latest. We will cross to her shortly. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. It is the second full day of the Queen's lying in state in Westminster Hall. Mourners continue to pour in overnight with the queue just short of five miles long at 4am, taking an estimated 10 to 11 hours. Um, let's get to Tanya then, who is at uh, Albert Embankment and uh, by just part of that queue. Um, Tana, w- Tanya, what's it, what's it like there at uh, this hour of the morning? Good morning, Jeff. Yes, that's right. I'm standing just in front of Carriage Gate, where all the well-wishers and mourners are coming out. They've just seen the Queen lying in state at Westminster Hall. And I spoke to a few of them, and the queue is up to now 10 to 11 hours. They've all been waiting overnight. It's getting longer and longer. And it's very emotional when they come out, Jeff. I spoke to quite a few this morning. There was one lady who was in tears. And everyone is saying the same thing when they actually get into Westminster Hall, which is just here over my left shoulder, and they see Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth lying in state. It's a very somber moment for everyone to pay their respects. We've been on the go since seven this evening, so... Um, yes, tired, but, but every footstep really is, you just keep remembering who you're walking for and who you're paying your respects to. And 
you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and it, it, it got us there. <laughs> it, you know, aching feet, but small, small price to pay, I think. As you could hear there from the two ladies who I spoke to, Joe and Sue, every step has been worth it for them to pay their respects. And of course, we've also heard that tonight at 7.30, British summertime, King Charles, Princess Anne, Prince Andrew and Prince Edward will hold vigil around their late mother's coffin. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.